the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 14th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. Anthropologist Helen Fisher studies love, why we love, how we love, and why we choose certain people over others. And she's recently got her hands on a gigantic data pool to do her research, chemistry.com. A few months ago, Helen teamed up with the Paris Opera Ballet at the Guggenheim to explore the age-old question of why him, why her, also the subject of her latest book. Motion and Emotion was the title of the evening, and today we're bringing you Helen's complete lecture. I and my colleagues, uh, Lucy Brown from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and Art Aaron from SUNY Stony Brook, and Bianca Acevedo from University of California, Santa Barbara, are becoming known for the fact that we've put now 49 people who were madly in love into a brain scanner using fMRI, 17 who were happily in love and just fallen in love, 15 who had just been rejected in love, and 17 who were uh, New Yorkers, actually, in their 50s, who reported that they were still in love, not just loving their partner, but in love with their partner after an average of 21 years of marriage. So, tonight, I will tell the story of research. Along the way, I want to use some of my other material to talk about the evolution of the human family, why we marry, why we have the propensity to divorce, why we remarry, and last, why you fall in love with one person rather than another. And I'll talk for about 15 minutes, and then the Paris Opera Ballet will interpret the concept of romantic love, then I'll talk some more, and then they will talk about attachment, and then I will make my last 15 minutes, and they will talk about impossible love. In fact, they're going to do a dance from Caligula, who apparently fell in love with the moon. We all make mistakes. (laughs) That's a bad one. (laughs) In the jungles of Guatemala, there stands a temple. It's built by the grandest sun king of the grandest city-state, Tikal, of the grandest New World Empire, the Maya. His name was Casa Canchaul. He stood over six feet tall. He lived until his 80s, and he was buried beneath this monument around 720 AD. And Mayan inscriptions proclaim that he was deeply in love with his wife. She died young, so he built a temple for her facing his. And every spring and autumn at the equinox, the sun rises behind his temple to perfectly bathe her temple with its shadow. And as the sun sets behind her temple, it perfectly bathes his temple with her shadow. Today, some 1,300 years later, these lovers still touch from the grave. Around the world, people love. They sing for love. They dance for love. They compose poems and stories and ballets and operas and movies and plays about love. They retell myths and legends about love. They have love charms, love potions, love magic. They pine for love. They live for love. They kill for love. And they die for love. I have a friend who's looked in 170 societies and he found no negative evidence whatsoever. Not a culture in this world where anthropologists have actually looked 
they have found examples of love in every single one of them. I did my own questionnaire before we started putting people in the brain scanner, and 437 Americans took it uh, in the New York area, and 402 Japanese. I found no gender difference in the passion. It's remarkable how Americans seem to believe that, um, uh, that men are not uh, romantic. I, I'm currently working with the dating site chemistry.com. It's the sister site of match.com. And I created a questionnaire that 30,000 people take every week. I was able to put just before, just a week before last, a group of questions about Valentine's Day. And one of the questions on, uh, it wa on the questionnaire was, um, what would you like your partner to say to you on Valentine's Day? And men were much more interested in hearing the words, I love you, than women were. Uh, <laughs> men fall in love faster, they're more uh, visually in touch. Uh, they have more intimate conversations with their wives, actually, than women do with their husbands because they've got fewer intimate male friends. Uh, men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over, and men are more likely to remarry. So trying to tell America that men are just as romantic as, as women are. It can also occur, uh, romantic love, at any age. Uh, I'm the second person to do a study of this, and both of them confirm it. In fact, I was making a... Um, a speech to um, mothers in New York City, mothers, uh, in, down in Chelsea. And uh, it was at lunchtime, and I decided I would ask the mothers if they ever, any of them had a child who was in love. A woman raised her hand, and I said, and she said, yeah. She said, every time a particular little girl comes over, my son just sits next to her and strokes her hair. And then when she leaves, my son is depressed for about an hour and a half. And so I said, I said, well, could you tell me how old your son is? And she said, he's two and a half. So this is a brain system like the fear system or the anger system. It can be triggered at any age. And I came to believe also my homosexual population uh, shows just as much of what I call the sweaty palm syndrome, the pounding heart, the dry mouth, the uh, anxiety of really intense romantic love, as did my heterosexual population. We're not talking about who you love. We're talking about how you feel when you love. And gays are just like straights. So I came to believe that romantic love was a universal uh, experience, that it was one of three basically different brain systems that evolved for reproduction. Sex drive, the craving for sexual gratification associated with testosterone in both men and women. W.H. Auden called it an intolerable neural itch. Pablo Neruda called it a, an eternal thirst or an infinite ache. Romantic love, um, passionate love, obsessive love, being in love, infatuation, all the same thing. I'm going to maintain it's associated with elevated activity in the dopamine system in the brain. And it's focused on one person at a time. George Bernard Shaw once, he said, love consists of overestimating the differences between one woman and another. And indeed, we do. And attachment is the third brain system. I think they evolved to do different things during uh, human evolution. I think the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I think romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time. And I think that attachment, that third brain system, evolved to enable you to tolerate this human being at least long enough to raise a child together as a team. So I generally do talk about how these interact, but I'm just going to go straight on to romantic love. I began my study of romantic love by reading the last uh, 40 years of psychological literature and culling from that data those traits that, I, that were mentioned over and over again were associated with romantic love. 
And then I also read world poetry. I truly believe that the arts are a great artifact, uh, a great expression of the basic brain systems, of basic human emotions. So, what is to love? The first thing that happens when you fall in love is a person takes on what I call special meaning. As one man in New York said to me, he said, the world had a new center, and that center was Marianne. Emily Dickinson said it differently. She called it the realm of you. In the Jade Goddess, it's it's the uh, Chinese uh, 12th century uh, fable that's much like our Romeo and Juliet. The young man says, since heaven and earth were created, you were made for me and I was made for you. If this person has become the most special human being on earth, and then you focus on them, everything about them is special. You just focus on them. Their car is different from every other car in the parking lot. The street they live on is different. The music and the dance that they like is different. Everything about them is special. And you focus on it. And I just want to give you a four-line poem from 9th century China, which is a perfect example of a man so fixated on a woman that when a certain thing happened, he couldn't bear to be without it. It's called The Bamboo Mat. It's by a man called Wan Chen. I cannot bear to put away the bamboo sleeping mat. The night I brought you home, I watched you roll it out. You got hooked on a bamboo sleeping mat. H.L. Mencken called love, uh, to be in love is to be in a state of perceptual anesthesia. Chaucer said love is blind. It is. In fact, before I started putting these people in the machine, I asked them what they did not like about their sweetheart. And they just, they could list it. They could list what they didn't like, but they would swept that aside and just focused on what they did. Intense energy, you can walk all night and talk till dawn as a man in a little um, uh, island called Mangai in the South Pacific said, I felt like jumping in the sky. Real euphoria when things are going well, mood swings into a horrible despair when things are going poorly. As Robert Lowell called it, he said, this whirlwind, this delirium of eros. The Tamal people of South India actually even have a name for it. They call it Mayakam, and it means intoxication, dizziness, delusion. All kinds of bodily reactions, pounding heart, sweaty palms. Uh, Stendhal once said, uh, when he took the arm of his lady, he said, I felt as if I had forgotten how to walk. Real emotional dependence on this person. Uh, as uh, Walt Whitman said, he said, oh, I would stake all for you. What people will do when they are in love is so <laughs> remarkable. In fact, before I put the people in the machine, one of the things that I would... The, I had to work myself up to this, actually, because I'm an, an anthropologist, not a psychologist, so I don't work with people on a regular level. But I, I would, at some point in the conversation, I would say to them, would you die for him or her? And they would say yes. Uh, a great many of them would just say yes. Uh, frustration, attraction, I made that term up. When things aren't going well, you just like them more. What a bad deal. You just like them more. In fact, uh, there's real separation anxiety. You know, I ask these people, well, is it good to keep a, you know, stay a couple of days away from the person so that you can uh, uh, you know, feel that rush again? And they, they think I'm daft when I say it. So I want to read one poem from... It's a 10th century Japanese tanka. It's only a couple lines, and it's a, it's a real separation anxiety. It goes like this. Early morning glows in the faint shimmer of first light, choked with sadness, 
choked with sadness, I help you into your clothes. Real possessiveness, uh, mate guarding, we call it in anthropology, but the three basic emotions of, of romantic love are craving. Sure, you'd like to sleep with the person, but really you want emotional union. You want them to call you up, ask you out, tell you that they love you. Intense motivation to win this person, and more than anything else, obsessive thinking. You've got somebody camping in your head. You can't get them out. In fact, these, I would say, what percentage of the day and night do you think about this uh, individual? And they would say, I never stop thinking of her. I go to bed thinking of him. I wake up in the morning thinking of her. I never stop thinking of her. Those are the ones that I put in the machine. Um, these machines are expensive. I've got to find people who are really madly in love. And last but not least, it's involuntary. As Stendhal once said, he said, love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. And indeed it does. So anyway, I, in red are those traits. I, I assembled all these traits for myself. And I said, all right, these traits in red are generally associated with the dopamine system in the brain. And the light uh, blue is trait associated largely with the norepinephrine system. This is associated with the vasopressive system, and this obsessive thinking is associated with low levels of serotonin. So I had a hypothesis that if I looked in the brain, I might find something that was an indication that, in fact, uh, there was increased activity in the dopamine or norepinephrine system or low activity in the serotonin system. And so Lucy Brown, our neuroscientist who does all of our analysis, and is here tonight, I hope, and Art Aaron from SUNY Stony Brook and Larsley and myself. And so we started putting people in the MRI. Uh, this is, um, you can't get two people in an MRI. It's a long, dark hole. This was the New Yorker's idea of our, our work. And we began to collect our data. And we found a lot of things in the brain, but the most important thing we found was activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, particularly in some cells that actually make dopamine and send dopamine to many brain regions. As a matter of fact, we found activity in exactly the same brain region that becomes active when you feel the rush of cocaine. So I suddenly realized I'd always thought that romantic love was an emotion or a group of emotions from high to low. And suddenly I realized, and it is, of course, there's many emotions involved. There's many cognitive processes involved, but it is basically a drive, a motivation system, a motivation it has all of the characteristics of a drive rather than emotion. And the most interesting for me is that it, there's no facial expression. You know, you can look at somebody and know that they're angry or sad or happy. You can't look at somebody and know that they're hungry or thirsty in the same way you can't look at somebody and know whether they're in love. And in fact, I think it's a drive that's much stronger than the sex drive. You know, if you casually ask somebody to go to bed with you and they say, no, thank you, you don't kill yourself. But around the world... Uh, the crimes of passion over romantic love are staggering. And in fact, I think it is a drive to win life's greatest prize, um, a, a, an appropriate mating partner. So just a little bit more uh, before the dance. Uh, I began to think to myself, you know, who cares whether we've found uh, data on how madly in love you are? People aren't a pest when they're in love. They become a pest when they've been rejected in love. That's when they suddenly 
attacks the medical system and the, and the legal system and, and certainly themselves. And wouldn't it be smart to then go and take a look and see uh, what happens in the brain that's been rejected in love? And so I did. I, I didn't really know what hypothesis I would have, except that I felt that romantic love was probably an addiction, perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. It's got all the basic signs of, a, of addiction, distorting reality, you do dangerous things, really dependent, crave the person, um, etc. So my hypothesis was that if we looked, we may find that brain regions associated with addiction among those people who had been rejected in love. So I put this flyer out at SUNY Stony Brook and at Rutgers University where I am and around New York City. Uh, have you just been rejected in love but can't let go? That's the deal. That's the problem. When somebody rejects you, you like them even more. So some people uh, staggered in. Nobody gets out of love alive. Uh, if you're involved at all, you get dumped at some point. In fact, in um, one college population, they asked a, two que a lot of questions about love, but one of them was, have you ever been rejected by somebody who you really loved? And another question was, have you ever rejected somebody who really loved you? And almost 95% of people in college, and they haven't even gone through their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s yet, have already experienced that. So put the people in the machine, 15 of them, and uh, Lucy Brown has just finished the analysis, and sure enough, we found activity in a uh, brain region uh, directly associated with profound addiction. We also found activity in that same ventral tegmental area, the region associated with intense romantic love. These people were madly in love with the, the person that rejected them. Three brain regions associated with craving, a brain region associated with deep attachment to this individual, and a brain regions associated with the distress that goes along with pain. I think nature overdid it. A romantic love is one of the most powerful brain systems on earth. It brings great sorrow and great joy, and we can see it in societies around the world today. So if our dancers are ready, Ah, they are ready. So I would like to uh, welcome the Paris Opera Ballet with an excerpt from Giselle. Charles Darwin once wrote, <laughs> it is evidently a case of love at first sight for she swam around the newcomer caressingly with overtures of affection. Darwin thought that animals loved. I think he was right. Uh, I've taken a look at courtship in a great many animals now, and in fact, uh, continually, there's not an animal on this planet that'll have sex with anything. Too old, too young, too scruffy, feathers not right, horns too little, they won't do it. They have favorites. 
they are attracted to some and not attracted to others. And in fact, when you read the animal literature, you see many of the indications of romantic love. Say foxes at the beginning of the breeding season in February. A male, a dog fox, will focus on a particular female. Probably dopamine, increased energy, that's probably dopamine. Sleeplessness, loss of appetite. They obsessively follow the individual. They're highly motivated to, to win this individual. They're very sexually possessive and they have all kinds of affiliative behaviors. Uh, orangutans will, you know, um, scrunch right up next to their partner. Uh, chimpanzees kiss, they, they've actually come up to anthropologists and done this with a deep French kiss in, in their mouth, so we know that it is a French kiss. Uh, and they will walk arm in arm. They show many of the same traits of attraction that you see in people. As a matter of fact, most of these things, if you saw it on a park bench in uh, uh, Central Park, you would say that they were in love. And in fact, in, in two studies, one of prairie voles, it's like a little field mouse, and in sheep, they were able to measure something that was going on in the brain while these animals were expressing real attraction. And in both cases, there was activity in the dopamine system. So it was the same basic brain system. I think that we evolved our intense ability to fall in love, to be particularly attracted to one particular individual. I think this, this comes out of nature. What's different about us, of course, is a rat tends to be express attraction for about... 30 seconds. Elephants do it for about five days. Uh, uh, foxes do it for about uh, 20 days. And human beings can do it for a long time. But there's really nothing that unusual about the fact uh, that human beings uh, fall in love. As a matter of fact, I think that love at first sight comes out of nature. I mean, a squirrel in Central Park, the beginning of the breeding season, she's got to find another squirrel. And she can't spend three years discussing his college plans. She's got to get on with his project. <laughs> and so when she finds one with a nice bushy tail and nice gait, uh, bingo, she can immediately become attracted. And in fact, there's uh, poetry from all over the world talking about love at first sight. And in one study by a girlfriend of mine of 100 people, 10 out of those 100 had actually experienced love at first sight. It's never happened to me, but I think that you can, almost anybody can, has had the experience of walking into a room and suddenly seeing somebody who, ah, if, you know, that you find a very attractive, uh, if not love at first sight. So I think that this brain system uh, came out of long before our ancestors uh, came down out of the trees. What's unusual about us is not that we fall in love. <laughs> What's unusual about us is that we bother to stay together with this individual and form a life together. Monogamy, pair bonding, forming a pair to rear our children as a team. Monogamy, I'm constantly being asked in the press, why are human beings adulterous? And in fact, that's not the news. The news is that we bother to pair up at all. 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. People do. And there's got to be very special circumstances under which a man will spend his life with just one female as opposed to a lot of them. And special circumstances for one female to tolerate one male instead of going out with a lot of them. And in fact, there are some ecological circumstances under which monogamy or pair bonding occurs. And one of them, the major one, is when the female cannot rear her children by herself. 
For example, a, a female mouse has very thick milk. She feeds the babies, they conk out, and she goes off and feeds herself and then comes back and feeds the young again. She does not need a male to help her rear her young. Foxes, for example, form a pair bond in the middle of the winter. They do it in large part because the, the female's milk is so thin that she has to feed those babies constantly. And as a result, she'll starve to death unless somebody feeds her. So pair bonding occurs in nature only when the ecological circumstances are such that it's essential. A lot of birds uh, form pair bonds, robins in the spring. Once again, somebody's got to sit on those eggs constantly. And indeed, that individual will starve to death if they don't have a partner. So pair bonding is extremely common in birds, but extremely uncommon in mammals. And many years ago, I set out to figure out why. Why this profoundly basic experience of attaching yourself to one particular individual for a length of time evolved in humanity. And the only reason I bring it up now, I used to talk about this a lot, is because of a new find that you read about in the New York Times oh, about three weeks ago called Ardi, Ardipithecus ramidus. They found a 4.4 million year old girl and various, um, this is, uh, these are actually individuals that are 3.2 million year old, but uh, already looked something like this. And indeed, some of the features of her face and teeth were such that anthropologists now think that Artie had already begun to form a pair bond with the mate to rear her young, a hallmark of humanity. So I want to give you my theory of how I think this evolved. Of course, it's a, I've been waiting 35 years for Artie because finally I have the hard evidence, we call it, uh, for the ev evolution of such a hallmark of the human animal, pair bonding. Our close relatives don't form pair bonds. Uh, they live in the trees. They're, the female is protected from the in the trees, she doesn't need a mate to protect her. She carries her baby on her back. She doesn't need a, uh, uh, anybody to um, help to feed her, and she can feed herself. And the trees began to disappear. This is not part of the theory. This anthropologist know. Trees were disappearing, and somebody had to get out. Those people aren't right, but the environment is what's important. Stuck between having to go through very open, dangerous areas to get to another group of trees. And with that, they began to come out in small groups. I believe there's nine individuals in this group. Gather whatever they could and then tear back into the trees where they could eat unmolested by predators. And of course, they'd have to stand up on two feet in order to carry. Also, scavenging. I have one friend who in one week scavenged a half a ton of meat just walking through the African plains. So our ancestors clearly did that, standing up, using tools to do it. Also protecting themselves from wild animals. And with the beginning of carrying came walking. Walking is the most important thing that our ancestors ever did. And here's where the theory begins. I think, and I wrote a book about this, uh, called Anatomy of Love some time ago, I don't see how a woman could carry the equivalent of a 20-pound bowling ball in one arm. If I were to give every woman in this arm a bowling ball to carry around for the next four years, I think you two would find 
uh, begin to look around for somebody to help you out. And uh, I don't see how this male five, six million years ago could have protected a harem of females, but I think he was suitable to protect one. So I think monogamy or pair bonding became essential to females and suitable to males, and we evolved this basic aspect of human behavior, the attachment system in the brain. And along with that, I think that we all also began to evolve what would become our modern brain system for romantic love. But I'm not suggesting that these early pair bonds were permanent. I've looked at divorce in 58 societies. I've looked at adultery in 42 cultures. Around the world, people divorce. As a matter of fact, in hunting and gathering societies, uh, women often have two or three husbands during the course of their lives. Our divorce rate is not as high as it has been in the past. But anyway, I, I began to wonder, why do people after they've fallen in love and formed this pair bond, break up and divorce. So anyway, I looked at uh, divorce in 58 societies through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, and I found that if you're going to divorce in culture after culture, you tend to divorce during and around the fourth year of marriage. It wasn't seven. I'd hoped it would be seven, but anyway, it was the fourth year of marriage. I also found that uh, people tend to divorce in their middle 20s, it's very young to be divorcing. You still have small children. 39% of worldwide divorces occur with no children. That makes sense from a Darwinian reproductive perspective. If you're not going to have children, it's probably logical to break up and find somebody with whom you will. But 26% of um, divorces occurred with one dependent child. There's a lot of people around the world walking out on, on one child. And then the older you get... The, and the more children you have, the longer the relationship lasts, the more likely you are to stay together. So I had all this data, and I thought to myself, okay, so I've gotten this four-year itch here. How could it be? And I began to read about pair bonding in birds and mammals. And as it turns out, in those few species of mammals, and a lot of birds, that do form a pair bond, they, let, they form a pair bond only long enough to rear a single group of infants or one infant through infancy. For example, a female fox. The male and the female get together in February. Together they feed the young. But when the babies begin to walk away in the middle of the summer, uh, of the, summer the pair bond breaks up. It lasts only long enough to rear the young through infancy. And same thing with the robin in the park in the spring. As the babies fly away, the pair bond breaks up. It lasts only long enough to rear those young through infancy. And it suddenly occurred to me, four years, four years is the period of time in hunting and gathering societies between births. The, the natural period between births is four years in human beings. That's what we were built to have our children about four years apart. This is why mothers have such stress when they've got two children under the age of four. But anyway, it suddenly occurred to me, maybe we evolved the drive to fall in love and to pair up and stay together only long enough to rear a single child through infancy and then break up 
and form a new pair bond with somebody else and start the process again. Now, there's all kinds of people who form a lifelong pair bond and keep having children, but why this restlessness in long relationships? And what would the adaptive significance of this be? And it suddenly occurred to me, okay, if you break up with one person and have a child and then fall in love with somebody else and have another child or two children, you're creating more genetic variety in your young. And hence, I think, millions of years ago, we evolved the drive to pair up and stay together at least through the infancy of a child. And then, as it happens in hunting and gathering societies, after the child begins to be five, six, uh, four, five, six, uh, they join what's called a multi-age playgroup where they can be cared for by a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old and cousins and aunts and uncles. uncles. The pair bond's no longer essential to survival. Leaving the human animal with the tremendous drive to fall in love, a drive to form a deep attachment to an individual, and a restlessness in long relationships, a tendency to divorce, and a tendency to remarry. The poet Anne Sexton once said, and every bed has been condemned, not by morality or law, but by time. That's the bad news. And here's the good news. I and my colleagues have done another brain scanning project. And the leader of this is Bianca Acevedo. She was a graduate student of Art Aaron. I think it was her ideas or it was arts to take a look at people who have succeeded in making a long-term happy marriage in which they also felt um, deep, intense, romantic love. So um, Bianca and I, Lucy's in the middle here, uh, began putting people who reported that they were all in their 50s, reported that they were still in love, not just loving, but in love with their uh, partner after an average of 21 years of marriage. Bianca got most of them in the machine. And indeed, we found activity in exactly the same brain region, the ventral tegmental area, area, that we found activity among those individuals who had just fallen in love. We also found activity in a brain region associated with deep attachment. The real difference between those lovers who were in a long-term relationship as opposed to those who were in a very short-term relationship is that in a short relationship, there's a, a brain region associated with real anxiety. When you've just fallen in love, you are anxious. Will he call? Do I look okay? What, you, know, you get crazy about it. But um, in long-term romantic love, that's gone, and instead you find brain regions associated instead with calm. So I'd like to just read one poem and then we're going to have a dance that expresses that deep feeling of attachment. This is a poem called Scaffolding. It's by Seamus Heaney. It's really difficult to find uh, pro, uh, uh, poetry about attachment. You know, it's very simple to find all kinds of world poetry about romantic love. But when you're deeply attached to somebody, I guess it doesn't drive you to get up in the middle of the night and write poetry. But this is called Scaffolding. It's pretty short. It goes like this. Masons. When they start upon a building, are careful to test out the scaffolding. Make sure the planks won't slip at busy points. Secure all ladders, tighten bolted joints. And yet, all this comes down when the job's done, showing off walls of sure and solid stone. So if, 
my dear, there sometimes seems to be old bridges breaking between you and me. Never fear. We may let the scaffolds fall, confident that we've built our wall. And so, an excerpt from Emerald by the Paris Opera Belly. As a young man, Darwin was annoyed by what he saw in nature. Colored stripes, tufts of hair, pendulous noses. He saw these, paint, uh, these appendages as cumbersome. They were metabolically expensive. They attracted parasite. But the biggest problem was that they didn't have a purpose. They undermined his theory that everything evolved for a purpose. He was particularly annoyed at the peacock's tail. He once wrote to his son, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, every time I gaze upon it, makes me sick. <laughs> this puzzle finally galvanized him to come up with his magnificent concept of sexual selection. The fact that some things evolved, not just to survive another day, but to win the mating game. Some things evolved just so an individual could fight off members of their own sex, compete with members of their own sex. And some things evolved because they were just so attractive to the opposite sex. This is a bald wakari. That red face is enormously attractive to female bald wakaris. And the reason is, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, is that um, it's built by testosterone. And what we think is going on is by he's signaling the redness of his face is that he's really a high testosterone male. Same thing with the red breast on um, a robin in the spring in the park. That's also built by uh, testosterone, and the females are crazy about it. And, of course, the male human face, uh, that very uh, dramatic jaw is built by testosterone, as is the heavy brow ridges and the, and the high uh, cheekbones. And, of course, women are crazy about that kind of high testosterone face also. And men tend to be crazy about the very round face, the very everted, puffy lips, uh, uh, the small nose, which are all signals of, of estrogen. So we're basically billboards. We're walking billboards of, of our biological type. What's interesting about this is that we have evolved not only all kinds of physical characteristics that advertise who we are, but all kinds of other things, too. I mean, why do we have dance? Why do we have poetry and music? Why do we have paintings and sculptures and, and architectures? Why do we have these things? You don't need these things to live another day. The chimpanzees are doing fine without them. Why did we evolve all these things? And the going hypothesis was done by a, a guy called uh, Jeffrey Miller and wrote a book in 2000 in which he said, these all evolved simply to play the mating game. The person with the finer uh, dance step, the uh, the person with the finest uh, linguistic ability for poetry attracted more of the girls. They had more babies. Those babies lived on, and we've evolved all kinds of, of traits that we are enjoying tonight. The issue then becomes, 
why him? Why her? Why do poetry turn on one person, whereas dance turns on another? Why do we fall in love with one person rather than another? I had written my fourth book on love, and it had come out in 2004. I was in my um, apartment two days before Christmas, and I got a telephone call from Match.com, the internet dating service. And they called me up in in New York City, not which happens two days before Christmas, but anyway, uh, they wanted me to meet with them two days after Christmas. I did, and uh, all these people filed in. I couldn't figure out who they were. Thought maybe it was some other academics too. As it turns out, it was the CEO on down of Match.com, the internet dating site. And in the middle of the morning, they said to me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I said, I don't know. Nobody knows. Very definitely, um, psychologists know that timing is important, that you tend to fall in love with somebody from your socioeconomic and and, uh, ethnic background. We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same educational background these days, same religious and social values, same uh, goals uh, with the lifestyle that we want. Uh, Your childhood certainly plays a role, but nobody really, I'm not convinced that anybody really knows how. There's a lot of biological factors that draw you to one person rather than another. We're drawn to somebody from the same level of intelligence, uh, same level of good looks, and actually uh, we've now discovered that your immune system pulls you actually towards certain people rather than others, and women do this by smell. But I began to think to myself, now wait a minute, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background and your level of intelligence and your level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. And uh, there's a part of this puzzle missing. There's basically two parts of personality. Um, There's your character, which is everything you grew up to believe and do and think and say. And there's your temperament, which is all those parts of you that come out of your biology. For example, some children are more curious than others. It's biological. Some are more stubborn than others. It's biological. Some are more aggressive or more agreeable than others. And I began to think to myself... Maybe I could go through the biological literature from the bottom up, go to the biological literature, and see those constellations of personality traits associated with different chemical systems in the brain. And then create a questionnaire to see to what degree you express these four, uh, these chemicals, any kind of chemical system, and then watch on this dating site who's drawn to home. So they asked me to create a new dating site, which I did. It's the sister site of Match.com. It's called Chemistry.com. And I created the questionnaire and began to watch on this dating site who was naturally drawn to whom. And so I want to run through the data that I've found. It's all the data of my newest book. It's called Why Him, Why Her. It just came out in paperback. And then tell you, in some ways, some of the biological ways that we're naturally drawn to some people rather than others. So there's a lot of systems in the brain, um, but most of them keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating. They don't necessarily uh, code for any kind of personality trait. And there's four basic systems in the brain that actually each one of them has a constellation of personality traits that seem to be associated with those systems. 
And because I was starting a new dating site with Match.com, I had to name these people. And if somebody was uh, very expressive of the dopamine and norepinephrine system, I made up the term explorer. Not great, but anyway. Those who were very expressive of the serotonin system, I called the builder. I hadn't read my Plato at the time. Plato called these people the guardian. That's a much better term. Uh, the, the third are people who were very expressive of the testosterone system. I called them the director. Once again, a bad term. Plato called them the rational. And um, the fourth are people who are very expressive of the estrogen and the oxytocin system. Now, we're all a combination of all of them. We're talking about brain systems, not cubby holes. But we do have uh, personalities, and we express some more than others. So I want to run through these four basic personality styles and then tell you what I've found in terms of trying to get to the bottom of why we're so naturally drawn to some people rather than others, why some people trigger this brain system for romantic love and others are perfectly nice human beings but don't do that. So, the Explorer. Five million people have now taken my questionnaire in the United States. Another three million have taken it in 39 other countries. And uh, 30,000 people take it every week. So I can continually study um, these people. And the kind of person who's very expressive of the dopamine norepinephrine system, uh, they're novelty-seeking, risk-taking, very curious, uh, creative, uh, energetic, um, impulsive, optimistic, enthusiastic, sexual, they're the most sexual of the four. Dopamine does trigger the testosterone system and it's associated with sexuality. They've got the most interests, very creative, adaptable, open-minded. There's a dark side to every moon. Uh, they tend to be more manic and unpredictable. They're unreflective. Uh, they look out, not in. I'm one of them, actually, and I don't really look in. And In fact, I was making a speech to a pile of therapists in California, and at one point I said something like, I, um, I didn't really care who I was. And uh, somebody from the back of the room screamed, uh, you want to talk about that? <laughs> I said, I didn't know, I didn't. <laughs> so anyway, I, this is a study I did recently of 178,000 people. I wanted to see what kind of words these people used, because I got five million of their profiles. Might as well see the words they used. The top word used by the explorer is adventure, spontaneous, energy, new, fun, traveling, passion, and active. I just did a study of 500,000 people. I got everybody's zip code, so I want to see where they live. They live in New York City. They live in the big cities around the world. I mean, around America. Don't go to Dallas and Houston and Phoenix if you're going to find explorers. They're doing something else. <laughs> Obama, I think, is very much of uh, an explorer, um, a very uh, daring man. Uh, I don't know if you read either of his uh, autobiographies, but the world believed him when he said he wanted change, and I think that does come out of his biology. Uh, Optimistic man, uh, in spite of everything. I don't know if you saw The Onion, the humor magazine. One of the leads was um, black man given worst job in the world. (laughs) And he's still optimistic about it, probably not as much as he was. And he also moves like a high dopamine person. They they tend to move with a real uh, style, uh, which he has. Uh, The builder, the high serotonin type, or the expressive of the serotonin system, or Plato called the guardian, conventional 
traditional, cautious, not scared, but cautious, calm, social, more, more close friends, the academic literature, managerial, very cooperative, very, make very good uh, managers of people. They're the ones at the office party flipping the hamburgers. They know everybody in the community. They're community leaders, orderly, loyal, conscientious. They respect authority. They follow the rules. They like rules. Religiosity is, and certainly in part, in the serotonin system. And they're very good with numbers. Uh, they're, they're not as creative otherwise. As a matter of fact, if you take enough Prozac or Paxil, your creativity will go down. Uh, they don't tell you that, but it's in the academic literature. The downside, they tend to be more closed-minded, stubborn, rigid, moralistic, and controlling. The, words, the top word that these people use is family, honesty, morals, respect, loyal, trust and trustworthy, get down twice, values. I think Colin Powell is a very good example of the builder type. I think a lot of people who, who go into the military can tolerate making the rules and following the rules. Third type is uh, the director, also called the rational, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, good at what scientists call understanding rule-based systems, everything from math to computers to engineering to mechanics to music. A good musician really sees the structure of music, and I think that that's uh, in the testosterone system. Emotionally contained, uh, I made a speech at Davos a, a couple years ago, and they're all high testosterone, and they don't move anything but their mouth. It's like this. It's like, it's a, the face does not move. The fingers, the thumbs on the blackberries move, but the face doesn't move. The downside is poorer verbal and people skills and more aloof and aggressive and a few other things. So anyway, the top word they use is intelligence and intelligent. There's a lot of different kinds of intelligence, but this is the kind... In fact, I've got a friend over at um, Rockefeller University who, who's written 18 books on, on hormones. And uh, this is it's a sort of the deep, narrow focus. Intellectual, geek, nerd, ambitious, driven, politics, challenging, and real. They've got to have it real. They're the least... Uh, interested in spiritual or, or religious uh, anything. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, is a very high testosterone woman. You can be high on both, low on both, high on one or low on, on, on the other. I was sort of astonished when I was watching her in Haiti. because I, I was hoping the face would move a little. I didn't expect her to be laughing, but I certainly expected to show her to show some anguish. And she had that self-containedness of the, of the very... And she's so blunt, my God. I mean, the, the Chinese really scratched their head. They, couldn't, they were astonished at how, how direct she was. The negotiators, the last of these four very broad personality styles. If there had been six, I would be talking about six, but these are the, the four chemical systems in the brain that are associated with, chemi uh, with chemical traits. They see the big picture, imaginative, very good with words, executive social skills, reading posture, gesture, tone of voice. Uh, theory of mind, that's the academic term for being intuitive, really linked with the oxytocin as well as the estrogen system. Empathetic, trusting, very emotionally expressive, agreeable, egalitarian. The downside is indecisive. These people live in a world of it depends. It depends. You know, where do you want to go to for dinner? And it depends. I can here, we can there. We can. Make up your mind. I'm making up my mind. And actually, I can know some of the structure that uh, estrogen actually builds the brain in certain ways so that you can, you're collecting data from a lot of different brain regions. I think that um, the top word they use is passion, real, heart, kind, sensitive, read. These are the big readers of the world. 
sweet, learning, random. Other types don't like random. One of the top ten words they used was random and empathy. I think Bill Clinton's a good example of a male negotiator. He's probably got a lot of testosterone in him. I think we, we know that, but, but he's got a lot of estrogen, too. A lot of American football players are very high in estrogen as well as uh, testosterone. He can't stop talking. The whole world knows he can't stop talking. Real people skills. I'm so glad our government asked him to go get those girls out of um, North uh, Korea rather than his wife. Emotionally expressive, he cries when Hillary makes his speech. And, of course, he's well known for saying, I feel your pain. That's all high estrogen kind of guy. I think Oprah's another very good example. I think Charles Darwin was a good example. In terms of a mind that could collect a lot of different pieces of data and put it together, it may be the most spectacular mind uh, built by estrogen perhaps ever in life. So, anyway, I have... Eight million of these. What you do is you take my questionnaire, it's in the book, Why Him, Why Her, and you get a pie chart, which is, in other words, we are all a combination of all of these things, but we have personalities. Then I, I did, this is something very recently. <laughs> Look at where all the builders live. Uh, serotonin goes south into the Midwest, they're traditional. Dopamine rolls into California. Everything loose rolls into California. This is the risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative. Uh, high testosterone is all around Washington, D.C. Or they're out in Nevada gambling. <laughs> or they're in Alaska shooting the animals. Uh, and look where the estrogen is. The tree huggers. Uh, the liberals. The high estrogen types. So, um, although Match.com was interested in that, what they really wanted, the question they really wanted to know was, you know, who's drawn to whom? And so, my most recent study is, is of that. Female explorers go for male explorers. Male explorers go for female explorers. Female builders, high traditional type, goes for the male builder. Male builder, high traditional, goes for traditional. In these cases, Birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> Female director, Hillary Clinton, goes for the male negotiator, Bill. This, I was watching this on this dating site. Male director goes for the female negotiator. Female negotiator goes for the male director. And male negotiator goes for the female director. In those cases, opposites attract. <laughs> so I think what's going on in terms of beginning to fall in love with somebody, you walk into a room, timing is right, you're being introduced to somebody, and the first thing you do is you look at them. Right off the bat, too fat, too thin, too tall, too short, too pink, too green, too scruffy, too scrub, they're out. If they stay in, you go and you speak to them when they open their mouth. Instantly, if they've got the wrong accent, they're out. And then you start talking to them, and you discover that they voted for Sarah Palin. They're out. <laughs> and all along the way, <laughs> thank you, I was worried. It is New York. Um, I got to do this in Texas. I wonder what will happen to me there. <laughs> there are breaking points. But all along the way, and what I'm trying to do in this book, the first half of the book, 
I really talk about these four very broad personality styles, and then I talk about how they court differently, what they're looking for in a partner differently, the kinds of marriages that they build, the kinds of things that you can really run into trouble with, the, the, some, some arguments you're never going to win, the way to reach them. I'm trying to add the second half of this puzzle of understanding your biological uh, compatibility. So I'm going to close my section with some lines from T.S. Eliot. He said... And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And so now, the last dance, Caligula. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Feel free to send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.